It's good to be here with you today. I enjoyed thinking about this sermon this week because I've never preached on this topic before. Have you ever heard a sermon on the law before? A sermon on the law. I've never heard one, never really thought about it, its importance until I began looking at this passage in the Sermon on the Mount. We've talked about several other things that Jesus commands us to do in the latter part of Matthew chapter 5, but this introduces it all, and this kind of explains how Jesus relates to the law in the Old Testament, Isn't how he relates, how he interprets it, how he sees it, and that's important for us as Christians. What, what do we do with the law? What does it mean for us? What does it even mean? What does it mean? And so this is summed up in Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. Um, it's right after the Beatitudes. And then Jesus says, Think not that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have come not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But he who does them and teaches them shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. The command here is to honor God's law. How do we do that as Christians who were saved by grace? It seems like a paradox, but Jesus explains it here for us. Let's bow together. Father, unfold to us your will for the Old Testament and specifically the laws of the Old Testament and how we as Christians are to obey them and honor them and honor you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This is a complicated passage, and it has been misunderstood and misinterpreted in many ways. How do we honor God's law? This is the command here. How do we go about doing that? Let me start off with where Jesus is standing. He's standing in the middle of two extremes. I've noticed anytime there's controversy in the Bible, it's because there are extremes on either side, and Jesus is trying to explain why he says and why he does what he does. On the one hand, the extreme of the Pharisees. And the Pharisees believed and taught the scrupulous observance of all the laws of God. And so they counted those laws and came up with 613 laws in the Torah. I'm going to talk about the Torah in a little bit, a little bit later. 613 laws, there were 248 positive laws, 365 negative laws. I guess there was a negative law for every day of the year. And if you love legalism, and if you love a checklist of things to do, and if you do them better than most, then these 613 laws lent themselves to keeping a lot of folks busy and happy and proud because the scribes and Pharisees obeyed them very well. And so they're always looking at Jesus and asking him, why he who calls himself a rabbi, who is referred to others as a rabbi, why, why aren't you politically correct? Why don't you observe all the laws? Why do you let your disciples um, pick wheat and eat it on the Sabbath? Why do you heal a man's withered hand on the Sabbath? Why, why do you sit down and eat with unclean people when you know how strict our dietary laws are? 
And so the Pharisees are criticizing Jesus for not observing the law. And then on the other hand, on the other extreme, are those who say that, well, Jesus, you taught us that the gospel is important and we aren't saved by the law, so we can do anything we want to. Jesus tells us to do good works in the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, but, but then he goes on to explain how that is. It's, it's not about good works, Jesus. You teach us it's about grace. And so they misinterpret the fact that they believe the law isn't valid anymore and they can do anything they want because they're saved by grace. It doesn't matter what you do or don't do because you can be forgiven of it. And so they call themselves the antinomians. You see that in your worship bulletin. Nomos is the Greek word for law. So an anti-nomos, an anti-law is someone who's against the law or just doesn't obey it, doesn't see it as being valid anymore. They're also called libertines because they emphasize the liberty, the freedom they have in Jesus to do anything they want to do. So they got the Pharisees who strictly observe the law on one end, those who have heard the gospel of grace and think they can do anything they want to do on the other end, and here's Jesus in the middle trying to explain how those two can come together. It's an important theme in the gospels. You aren't saved by the law, but you can't do anything you want to either. And so Jesus tells us about the importance of good works in the Sermon on the Mount, and then he goes on to explain what some of those good works are. But how do those good works relate to our salvation? When we're saved, obviously we're saved by grace and not by works. So these verses are the key to understanding the teachings of Jesus in relationship to the Old Testament. How does Jesus understand the Old Testament and relate it to his gospel? It was confusing then, and it, to many it still is. So let's take a look at it. The first thing we got to understand is what is the law? I distinctly remember being in high school and sitting in Sunday school and hearing people talk about the law, the law, and I didn't know what they were talking about. What in the world is the law? What are you referring to? Well, the law is the name for the commandments given by God in the Old Testament. And as I said, there were 613 laws that are lumped together and called the law, and they are found primarily in the first five books of the Old Testament. What are the first five books of the Old Testament, those of you who did Bible drill? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Those are the first five books of the Old Testament. They are called the law. The Jews call them the Torah. They are the five books where the commandments, the 613 laws are found. Some Jews refer to them as the Pentateuch, those who were raised in Greek-speaking countries. So penta means five, tuk means scrolls, and so they're the five scrolls for the Greek-speaking Jews. They're the Torah for the Hebrew-speaking Jews. They were attributed to Moses. You remember when Moses went up on Mount Sinai and came down with the Ten Commandments? They're contained here. He wrote these laws. And for Jewish people, they hold the supreme rank in the Old Testament canon, in the Old Testament book, in terms of respect and holiness. I remember in seminary going to a, a synagogue and, and, and seeing a worship service and just being overwhelmed by how respectful they were of the Torah. They kept the Torah in a locked cabinet behind their, their lectern. And when it came time for the Torah to be read, 
someone came forward and he, was, he had taken it out and he was carrying it forward and it was wrapped in brocaded fabric and tied with cords and tassels and he held it up and there was a hush that fell over the whole congregation as he brought the Torah forward for the rabbi to read and he unfolded the scroll of the Torah and read it and there was a holy awe and hush that fell over the whole congregation. The Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament contain the law of God. But what about us Christians? Do we need to follow the law as prescribed by God in the Old Testament? We're familiar with the Ten Commandments found in Exodus 20. We know what those Ten Commandments are. How well do we do with them? Well, the Sixth Commandment is, is thou shalt not murder. We, we've done pretty well on that or we wouldn't be here this morning. Um, the Fourth Commandment do you know what that is? The fourth commandment is remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. How well do we do with that one? We do pretty, pretty good, but remember the Jewish Sabbath began on Friday evening at sundown and went to Saturday evening. So we've already reinterpreted the Sabbath for the Christian church. And then Jesus goes on to say in verse 18, Till heaven and earth pass away, not one dot, not one iota will pass from this law until all of it is accomplished. Now a dot and iota, some translations say a jot or tittle. Those were the smallest punctuation marks in the Hebrew language. It would be like a, a comma or an apostrophe. We would say not one dot of an I, not one cross of a T will pass away until all of these things are accomplished. So what does that mean? Well, let's talk a little bit about, for Christians, what the law does. You remember, the, well, the original purpose of the law, when the children of Israel left Egypt, they were forming a nation for the first time. They'd never been the Jewish nation. They are headed for the promised land. They are going through the wilderness. They did not know how to govern themselves. They'd never had to do that before. Someone had always done it for them in bondage in Egypt. So some laws by which they all had to live had to be set down, had to be established. And that's when Moses went up on Mount Sinai and came down with the Ten Commandments. And those Ten Commandments continued to evolve until they came up with 613. And those first five books of the Old Testament called the Torah, the Pentateuch, the law. The law was the gold standard. It was the standard of perfection, of doing everything just right, just perfectly. Now, who's the only person who ever lived that did everything perfectly? Jesus. Jesus is the only one who never sinned, who never transgressed the law. And I, I've actually heard a legend one time that said when every Jew observed all 613 laws on that day, the Messiah would come. Of course, that day would never happen because it'd be like every American obeying every law of the land. And we don't even come close. Sometimes I think of the law as like this. How many of you are teachers? And when you are a teacher and you give a test and the tests are turned in by the students, how do you grade them? What do you grade those tests by? Don't you, like, write a key? And that key has all the right answers in it. 
And then you get all the tests in and you compare them to the key and you mark off the ones that the students get wrong. It's, it's the answer key. Well, the law is kind of like the answer key for the kingdom. Unfortunately, none of us make a hundred. <laughs> Most of us, how, how would you rank us? How would you grade us on our righteousness scale, one to a hundred? 50, 60, 75? No, not even close. I think you and I are probably somewhere in the low tens, maybe somewhere between one and five. And maybe if somebody gets above five, we wouldn't even know that because they have, they do their good deeds in secret. So we are down in the lower tens. There's no way we can ever score 100. It's a sad state that we are in. Paul tells us what the law does, what its purpose for Christians is. It does serve a purpose. And Paul tells us what that purpose is when he's writing to the Galatians, because the Galatians have been influenced by these folks that Paul calls Judaizers, who come into Galatia and are trying to tell the Christians that in order to be saved, in order to be a Christian, they have to first become a Jew. And that involves circumcision. And so the Jews are saying that you have to be circumcised to be a Jew and then to be a Christian. And Paul is saying, wait a minute. If you're saying we have to add anything to the gospel, if we have to add anything to the cross in order to be saved, then you have nullified the work of the cross in its entirety. And that's where he comes up in Galatians chapter 3. Verses 23 through 26. Now before faith came, we were confined under the law, kept under restraint until faith could be revealed, so that the law was our custodian until Christ came, that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a custodian, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. Paul is saying the law played an important role in our development. It was like a custodian. And the Greek word for custodian means tutor. It means babysitter. It means um, um, kindergarten teacher. That's what it did. The law raised us and it brought us along and it helped us. What the law did was it taught us our sin and our need for a savior. So the law became the external standard. It reveals our sin. Jesus saves us from it. And so we assume that the law has done its job and we write it off by saying that Jesus has done away with the law. He has replaced it. But what does he say here in verse 17? Do not think I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. That's just the word. The law and the prophets is the word for the Old Testament. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. What did he come to do? Not abolish, but fulfill. The Greek word for fulfill, plerao, means to complete, to bring to fruition. So this verse could be translated, I have not come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have come to complete them. I have come to finish them. I have come to bring them to fruition. And then the writer of Hebrews tells us how that happens. Chapter 10, verse 1. 
Since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices which are continually offered year after year make perfect those who draw near. The law is a shadow. The law is a precursor. It can never make perfect those who draw near. It is a shadow of the perfect one who is Jesus. Jesus came to fulfill the law and complete the law. And Jesus very clearly here says he did not come to destroy it. He came to fulfill it. What Jesus is doing is getting behind the law, behind the intention of the law to reveal its truer and deeper meaning. And Jesus actually showed us how to live up to the intention behind the law in his own life. So that's why he gives us six examples in the rest of Matthew 5 about what it means not just to observe the law, but to observe the intention that was behind the law. With respect to food laws, Jesus says it's not what goes into a man that defiles a man. It's not what you eat. The food laws were just a shadow of what is clean and unclean. Jesus says, I'm going to complete that law, bringing out its intention by telling you that what really renders someone unclean is not what goes into the mouth, but what comes out of the mouth. It's not what you eat that makes you unclean. It's what comes out of your mouth. It's your words. It's your actions. It's your thoughts that reveal what's going on in the heart. Do you see the difference? It's not what, it's what comes out of a heart that, that's important. Not the externals, not the appearances of what people eat, what people do. It's what's in the heart. In the Old Testament, God had written his law on paper. But he promised that the days were coming when there'd be a new covenant and he would write his law on people's hearts, not on paper. So the law of the Old Testament is the first covenant. It is written on paper. It is not perfect. It is a shadow. It is a precursor of what was to come. Jesus brought the perfect covenant. Don't relax the old covenant with his laws. Don't abolish it, but perfect it. Complete it. That's what Jesus is arguing. How is that different? Well, the Old Testament laws primarily concern themselves with external appearances. What was necessary for the new nation of Israel? As I said, they were a new nation. They didn't know how to govern themselves. They're marching in the wilderness. They had to have laws to police themselves, to control themselves, that everyone agreed to, and that punishment would come to those who transgressed those laws. A set of rules by which to govern themselves, and you can only govern that which you see externally. So when the Old Testament law says, thou shalt not murder, you can see when somebody murders somebody, but Jesus turns it inward. And he says, you have heard it said that you shall not murder, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be liable to judgment. So it's not just murdering somebody that Jesus is arguing for. He's saying, if you're angry with your brother, that is the intention behind that commandment. That's where murder begins. It begins in the heart of one who dislikes somebody. And then you let that, that dislike brew and boil. And then it becomes hatred. And then it becomes just, just violently angry at somebody. And then you begin to plot ways 
to kill them, to, be with, to, do, to do away with them. And it all began with anger in the heart. There's no way you or I can tell what someone is thinking about doing to another person, whether you hate them enough to murder them or not. So Jesus says even thinking about murdering somebody is a sin because he's interested in something deeper than just the external appearance. He's interested in the obedience of the heart. So this is what Jesus is saying here. He tells us that he did not come to abolish the law, not the least little bit of it. He came to fulfill it. He came to complete it, meaning the Old Testament law was not complete. It was a national law, but it was not written on their hearts. The parameters were external, visible ones that could be enforced. But when Jesus came, he completed it. That means the law we follow has some big differences from the Old Testament external laws. The Old Testament law was written on paper, but Jesus says if you're a Christian, you are born again, and when you are born again, he puts your Holy Spirit within you, and the Holy Spirit writes his law on your heart. We find out how we should live in the Bible, but we find the desire and strength to live that way in our heart. Because being a Christian is not just believing something, not just assenting to a set of tenets or beliefs. Being a Christian is about believing in someone, a relationship with God made possible by Jesus' death on the cross and the Holy Spirit coming and living within us. And when he enters your heart through the Holy Spirit, he writes his law on your heart and that changes you from the inside out. If that hasn't happened to you yet, You need to do that. You need to let the Holy Spirit come into your heart and write God's law right there. And that's when we come to the last verse that really is startling. Jesus says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. I remember being a young Christian and thinking, well, Jesus didn't see eye to eye with the scribes and Pharisees. That must not have been a very high measure to have to live up to, to to exceed their righteousness. But you got to remember in Jesus' day, the scribes and Pharisees were the most righteous people that they knew. They observed the law scrupulously. Their righteousness was proverbial. And Jesus says, if our righteousness isn't better than theirs, then we'll never get to heaven on our own. Because God's standard for righteousness is what? It's perfection. Were the scribes and Pharisees perfect? No. So our righteousness has to be greater than theirs. But but wait, that's impossible. We can't even attain where the scribes and Pharisees were, much less exceed them. And that's why Jesus came to die on the cross. The Bible says that Jesus came to die on the cross to be our righteousness. He died in our place so that if we believe in him, then we gain his righteousness And that's the only way our righteousness can ever exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees is if we have been made righteous in Jesus. So does that mean that it doesn't really matter how we live? Of course not. Of course it matters how we live. Because if Jesus is your Lord and Savior and the Holy Spirit is living in you and he has written his law on your hearts and you'll still make mistakes and mess up and sin, yes, 
but you're better than you were because you're aware of that sin because the law has raised you up like a custodian and has taught you right from wrong. You're better than you were. You're not as good as you're going to be if you're continuing to walk in faith toward Jesus. The scribes and Pharisees were all about external appearances. While inside they were unchanged, Jesus called them whitewashed tombs. Outside they were beautiful. Inside they were like dead man's bones. But when we belong to Jesus, he has made us righteous in God's eyes. He came to impart his righteousness to us by his death on the cross. And the good deeds we do don't save us, but they become the evidence that we are saved. So if you're here this morning and you are saved, hallelujah, I rejoice with you in that. Your righteousness already exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees because of what Jesus did for you on the cross. He has made you righteous in God's eyes. But if you aren't saved, if you aren't sure if there's evidence in your life that you are saved, you can give your life to Jesus this morning because Jesus is our Lord and our Savior. And he gives us his righteousness and writes God's laws on our hearts. So I hope you see what the Old Testament law did, what its purpose was, and why Jesus didn't write it off and say it's totally irrelevant now that I have come. He said, I'm not here to abolish it. I'm here to complete it. And you complete it by living it in your hearts. Let's bow together. Oh, Father, thank you for sending Jesus. Because if our righteousness had to exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees in order to see the kingdom of heaven, we would never make it. Because the scribes and Pharisees spent their entire lives studying the law and practicing it. And so we fall far short of them and even further of the standard of sinless perfection you require. And so thank you for sending Jesus who lived a perfect life, who died on the cross and when he did so imparted to us his righteousness and we imparted to him our sin. And he paid the penalty for it. And he went into the grave and three days later he was raised. And so he is alive today and through the Holy Spirit he dwells in us. And you write your law in our hearts and we know when we sin. We can rationalize and we can excuse and we can, we can get away with a lot of bad stuff. But all the while we know a sin is a sin is a sin. And so we need your forgiveness and we need your grace, not as a license to do whatever we want to do, but because of the sins we have committed and the desire to be made righteous in your eyes through Jesus Christ our Lord. In his name we pray, amen.